0: all right we're uh in uh what's known as theology proper that is the the study of God itself so um systematic theology is is a organized um, study a systematic study of God throughout the scriptures, but not just God himself but but all the doctrines surrounding his word and so now we're in theology proper, which is the study of of God Himself. And last week we looked at the existence of God and we saw that in the Scriptures it is simply assumed that God exists. And so this week we want to look at the greatness of God. Okay, When you look at the character qualities of God, they're generally broken down into, by theologians, they're generally broken down into two main categories. One is the categories of His greatness. And the other category that we're going to look at next week is the category of his goodness. All right, and we'll we'll talk about what the difference is between those, but let me just start with his greatness. Okay, the meaning of his greatness. Um so we're talking fundamentally about his attributes. These are the 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 properties that make God who he is. And so we're dividing them into the 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 attributes of his greatness and the attributes of his goodness. The the attributes of his greatness have to do with his attributes that belonged to him alone. In other words, that we cannot have, that we don't have, we, we can't duplicate. That, that they're not shared with mankind. Okay, So let me give you a few examples. We'll kind of uh, work through these quickly. You have these on your handout, but I want to get to three main categories of his greatness um, starting on the inside of your handout. But we'll just, let me just give you some examples here. First, his self-existence. That is, that God is uncaused, that He is totally independent. John 5.26 says that the Father has life in Himself. He doesn't get His life from another person or from another being like we do. We are not uncaused. We are caused by God. That is, we are created beings. God is uncaused. He is self-existent, something that we cannot duplicate or attain. Secondly, perfection. That he is complete that that he lacks nothing, okay, you and I lack things we we are lacking in many areas, and even uh throughout eternity, I believe that we will not uh, we will be whole, but we will still be required or dependent upon God. see, God is not dependent upon anybody else, and so he is wholly complete. that's why Act seventeen says, God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. God doesn't need anything. He is self-sufficient. Maybe that's another word we could use instead of perfection. Self-sufficient. Thirdly, omnipresent. Okay, omni means everywhere or all. So He is all-present or everywhere-present. Psalm 139 talks about the fact that not that it's not that God goes ahead of where we are. Like if we go to the ends of the sea or to the heights of the, the mountains or to the depths of hell, God is there. God doesn't move there ahead of us. He's already there. That is that God fills up all the universe. Not that He is the universe, but that He fills it up. That He is everywhere present. Um, God's um, existence is is uh expressed as being everywhere at the same time and then next God is eternal that his existence cannot be measured by time we can't put God into a time uh, a, a time continuum time-lapse continuum he, he he is without a beginning or an end psalm 90 says that that he is from everlasting to everlasting from everlasting to everlasting so so from Eternity past, God was always there, and and eternity future, He will always be there. And uh, certainly, these things are not easy to comprehend, but that's because we have finite minds. We think in in time, but uh, God doesn't exist in time. Time is really designed for us as humans who are finite, and time will be done away with at the end of the age. And then this last example is called the unchangeableness or immutability, called the theologians call this, that God never changes in His nature or His attributes or His purposes. Okay, God never changes. Malachi 3.6 6 says that I, the Lord, do not change. Uh, we talk about the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews tells us. All right, so these all have to do, these categories of God's greatness all have to do with his infinity, that he is infinite. And what we mean by that is that God has no external limitations. okay Nothing outside of him confines him or controls him or binds him to do uh, what he wants to do, or binds him from doing what he wants to do. If you and I make a plan, we want to try to carry it out, there are all sorts of things that can get in the way of our plan. right? We can run out of time. We can run out of money. Someone can can physically stop us from doing it. Uh, We could get injured. There's all sorts of different things that can happen. But with God, nothing outside of Him stops Him from doing what He wants to do. God is completely uh, um, unbound by external limitations. He is infinite. And so there's nothing outside of him that determines who he is or what he does. Only created objects have external limitations. Okay, Think of Satan himself. Satan is a very powerful creature, the most powerful creature there is. But he's a creature. He has external limitations. He can't do whatever he wants. He has plans. He has goals. He has purposes. But those plans and purposes and goals are confined by what God determines. And so He is bound by external limitations because He is a creature, but God is a, is the Creator. And um, so these are expressions of God's infinity. And uh, that's why I said on Wednesday night that that even for all of eternity, when we get to heaven, we will still be bound by things external to us. We will not become a God in the sense that we will be Unlimited in what we can do. We will still have limitations. Certainly, we will be in a much better place than we are now, but my point then was we will not be fully like God. Uh, we will be somewhat like Him, somewhat more like Him, um, but we will not fully be like God in the sense that we are infinite in our thinking and our ability, uh, being everywhere present, that sort of thing. Alright, so I want to focus on three main um aspects of God's greatness this morning. And the reason I want to do this is because these are fundamental to the rest of our course. These are going to come up several times, okay? So the first one is omnipotence. That God is infinite in power. God is infinite in power. Okay, so God, we said with regard to his infinity, it means that he is without limitations. And we want to focus now on his his uh his limitless power, that he is all omni, omni, all, he is all potent, powerful. He is all powerful. And this is best illustrated in the work of his creation. Psalm 33, 6 through 9 says, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, the starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the seas into jars. He puts the deeps into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let the people of the world revere him. For He spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. God created. He created out of nothing. In order for us to come up with some sort of object or invention, we have to have pre-existing materials, right? We can't just speak and something comes into being. Um, It it has to be pre-existing. But that's not the way it is for God. God can make out of nothing. That's called creation. God is limitless in His power, but he's all, this is also seen in His control of history. In the climax of human history that we've been looking at on Sunday mornings in Revelation, the activities of the world leaders are accounted for with this explanation. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish His purpose by agreeing to give the beast their power to rule until God's words are fulfilled. That God, from the beginning of time all the way till the end of the age, has controlled history. He has control, and He has put it into their hearts. Exodus chapter 9, verse 16 says that, that God raised up Pharaoh. He said, Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, so that people would know me, that they'd be able to see my, my greatness through the signs that I was going to use to deliver my people. God is omnipotent, seen as in, in His creation. Is in his control of history and in the outworking of his uh, individual, his plan for individual men. Um, Job recognized this at the end of his trial uh, when God was speaking to him. He finished and Job said, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. My ears had heard you, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and repent and dust, and ashes. See, God is limitless in His power. Now, we have to be careful how we, we talk about this because especially when you're uh, dealing with kids, they tend to say, you know, God can do anything. And that is true as long as you qualify that. Okay, God can do anything that's in keeping with His nature and character. Okay, And when I talk about that, see, those are internal, we could call those internal limitations that He's put on Himself. But well, we know clearly from Scripture that God cannot do a few things, right? He can't lie, right? Those are internal limitations, though. He's not bound not to be able to lie because someone outside of Him or some being outside of Him is not allowing Him to lie. Okay? God binds Himself in that way not to be able to lie. So God can do anything that's in keeping with His, his character and with His purposes. And uh, that's how we should speak about those things. Obviously, when you're talking with kids, you'll have to figure out uh, the best way to make that clear. But, um, but you know, um, sometimes you, you've heard these philosophical, uh, nonsensical arguments. You know, can God make a rock too big for Himself to hold? That sort of garbage. I mean, that, that's, that's just nonsense. Okay? He wouldn't be able to do anything that would, be, that would not be in keeping with the way He set up the laws of nature he he's already he's already bound himself, okay, and the key word is he has the key word there is himself he's bound himself and um and so uh so we we shouldn't think in those terms that God can simply do whatever he wants and all of a sudden just change into some evil creature he's not going to do that um he is the creator he he does not change all right, so as we look at each one of these main. Topics I want to look at how they apply to us or implications um, of what they mean for us. So, before I get into these implications, any questions on God's power that it is limitless? All right, good. Assume you have a grasp on that then. All right, first. The fact that God is powerful means that we are dependent. Okay? God is limitless limitless with the, with regard to himself that nothing outside of him constrains him to do anything. So so he is that way. He is the creator, but we therefore are dependent. We are limited. Okay? He is unconstrained. He is independent. We are dependent. We we need God. Okay? And so the first way we see that we are dependent on God is through His preservation of the physical universe. His preservation of the physical universe. Um, Hebrews chapter 1 says that the Son, that is Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. Colossians talks about this similar idea that Jesus holds all things together with the word of his power that is that if he stopped holding the universe together it it would i don't know it'd be corrupted it would explode it'd be destroyed but God holds it all together that we are dependent upon God to do that to make sure that all these laws that he set in place continue to be in place Secondly the second implication is that we are dependent upon God for protection from physical harm or spiritual harm, as we've seen in Revelation. We're, we're dependent upon God for, for protection from harm. Job 34, 14 and 15, If it were His intention and He withdrew His spirit and breath, all mankind would perish together and man would return to the dust. We are dependent upon God for protection from harm. We, we may put up all these barriers. You know, we, have, we may have a perfect security system and, and a huge dog to protect us from, from whatever, but, but ultimately it's God who protects us. That, that we can't ultimately protect ourselves. We are dependent upon God for His protection. And then, thirdly, provision of daily needs. God, Matthew 5 says, causes the sun to shine on the evil and the good, and He sends His rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And if God were to stop doing that, we would be in big trouble. If He stopped causing the sun to shine, if He stopped causing the rain to come, our sustenance would be done away with. And so does God who provides for our daily needs. So this is significant for us. And we should respond to God's power. Um, First of all, it's significant because it gives us assurance of salvation. In order for us to have assurance of salvation, we are dependent upon God's power. That is that God reveals Himself to us to tell us about salvation, but also that the Spirit Himself would speak with our spirit that we are the sons of God, teaching us or telling us that we are the sons of God. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1 with me. And uh, I wish we had time to look at all these passages, but um, your fingers would be tired by the end, and we would certainly run out of time. So I I tried to put little snippets of these verses up on the on the screen for us, but um, we will look at a few. First Peter chapter one. When someone read for us verses three through five. Living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Okay, so we we have a lot there that God does for us. Verses three and four talks about providing that salvation, providing us that living hope to obtain this inheritance, but also, verse 5, that He protects us by the word of His power, that that He actually shields us. That's the idea there, that He shields us by His power to protect us all the way until the end so that we can get that final inheritance that He has promised for us and chosen for us. Alright, so the Christian is dependent on the power of God for assurance of salvation. Then, secondly, second significant thing about God's power is that it gives strength to us to face circumstances in life. Turn to Isaiah chapter 40. Strength to face circumstances. Isaiah chapter 40. Very encouraging chapter. Um, When I visit people who are not doing well, I, I often read this passage to them. Um, it's, a, it's a passage. It's a chapter of hope. God's future restoration. And it gives uh, strength to help face the circumstances in life. Look at verse 29. Isaiah 40:29. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles, they will run and not get tired. they will not they will walk and not become weary. We are dependent upon God for His power, and so that should give us strength in the circumstances in life when when things are unclear when when things are difficult and we can't see the end from where we are now, we turn to God and recognize that it is His power that sustains us. It is His power that carries us through, just as it did for Israel. Isaiah chapter 40. Thirdly, since the Christian is totally dependent upon God, it should cause us to serve Him with reverence and fear. Philippians 2:12 says that we we ought to work out our salvation with fear and tre- trembling for it is God who works in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So if if we have a responsibility, okay, think human responsibility, if we have a responsibility to work out our salvation, to do what's required, to to continue on in the Christian life, then we have to recognize verse 13 that it is God who works in us both to will and to act or to do His good pleasure. Okay, So God's power has significant uh, ramifications for our lives. We need to recognize that He is infinite in power. We should not limit His power as if He is confined uh, to a box in some way. God is infinite in power. Any questions on God's power before we move to the next one? Or comments. Phil. Uh, Philippians 2, 12, and 13. Yeah. Uh, my Bible says uh, that uh, we're to work out our own salvation. Yes, sir. What like so many people look at that and, and they think that they got to work it? To me, it would be better if it said work from your salvation. You can't work for it. No. No, it's not talking about a works-based salvation at all. And that's why verse 13 goes on to say, for it is God that works out, that works in us both to will and to do of His good pleasure. So the idea that Paul is saying is that um, God is powerful to work in the believer to to uh, carry out salvation in his life. But that doesn't make, verse, and think back to verse 12, that doesn't make the, the believer passive in it. As if God does completely everything, we just kind of sit back and do nothing. That that's that sort of mindset I think Paul was completely against, and we need to be as well. Um, not that we have to help God on to our salvation, but He certainly requires certain things of us, that we actually need to be coming more holy, and that we need to be um, purging sin and those sorts of things, complicit to the Spirit's leading. So, yeah, I, I think people have used verse 12 as a as a way to try to prove a uh, free will type salvation or a a human works type salvation, but taken in the context, verse 13, which is the focus of what we're trying to do here, is that God is the one who's actually doing that work. All right? Next. next um, uh, The next thing that we want to look at with regard to God's, God's greatness, that is these attributes of His infinity that cannot be duplicated by us, that are solely His. Uh, First, we saw His infinite power. Now, we see His infinite knowledge. It's another um, theological word that perhaps you've heard before, omniscient. That is omni, all, and uh, science there is the root word meaning knowledge. So, God is all full of knowledge or He is full of knowledge. He is all-knowing. I right, turn to First John chapter three, because uh, we have the clearest expression of this, probably, in all the Bible, about God's full, limitless knowledge is unlimited knowledge. See, we are limited, obviously, in our knowledge. We can only have a certain number of things in our minds at one time. We can only fill up our minds with so many things. We can't know everything about everything. Maybe you know somebody that thinks they, they do, but it's huh, not true. Only only with God it is. Can someone read verses 19 and 20, 1 John 3? Hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before Him. For if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. Alright, so God knows knows a few things. God knows all things. There's nothing outside of his knowledge. So, so what precisely does this mean? Well, first, he has complete knowledge of creation. Okay So if creation is defined as everything that is not God, then everything in creation is is open and and uh, known by God. Proverbs talk about it in this way. They say, Death and Hades lie open before the Lord, how much more the hearts of men. That is, if God knows everything that are in the netherworld, the the, um, the the place of the dead, if He knows everything that's going on there, how much more does He know what's in our hearts? There's nothing, Hebrews 4 says, nothing in creation that is hidden from His sight. As if we can go somewhere and hide from God. He's, he's always there. He knows it. He knows exactly what's going on. Psalm 147. He determines the number of stars and calls them all by name. Psalm 147:4. God has complete knowledge of creation. He also has knowledge of possible events. Now, this one's a little bit harder to comprehend for us, but he he knows possibilities. What what could have happened if if um, if things were done a different way? And the reason we know this is because of Matthew chapter 11. Verse 21, I'll just read it for you. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Okay, Jesus is making a point here. The miracles that you're seeing, you're not responding to. And if Tyre and Sidon, these wicked cities that will be destroyed because of their unbelief, if they had seen what you see, they would have responded a long time ago. God knows that because He knows possibilities. He knows them only as possibilities. And so what this should tell us is that God knows everything past, present, and future, including all the possibilities that, that, that could have happened, and and that God never learns anything. How How do we gain knowledge? I mean, how do we know anything? The only way we can... Know anything is if we learn it. We have, to, we have to learn it through observation, but not with God. God knows the smallest details of life, including the number of... Uh, in fact, I think that's the next, next one here. He knows the smallest details of life, even the number of hairs on your head, even things that we would say are insignificant. He knows them all. They're not insignificant to God. We have to learn these sorts of things through in-depth study. If we wanted to know the number of hairs on our head, it would take a long time for most of us. But, but, um, but not with God. He knows them uh, because he has, he has planned it. We'll talk about that here in a second. And then God's knowledge is based on His will. God's knowledge is based on the accomplishment of His will Matthew 10.29 says, there are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of the Father. Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of the Father. And then turn to Acts chapter 4 with me. You're um, going to have to hurry through these last several points, but um, I want to show you that God's knowledge is, is is active. It's not passive. That he doesn't gain his knowledge through observation. That is, a, in the sense, that it's a passive activity. That he can't he can't uh, be the actor in that. Um, rather, he is the designer of these things. His knowledge is active in the sense that that he is the designer of these things. He's planned them all. Look at Acts four twenty seven. It says, for truly in the city. They were gathered together against Your holy servant Jesus, Peter's talking to the Jews here, whom You anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever Your hand and Your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats. I'm sorry, this is actually um, this is actually a, a prayer here um, of Peter and John to God. And so they're saying, the fact that these people, these wicked men herod Pontius Pilate and and Gentiles and so on delivered Jesus over to be crucified, they were doing, verse 28, whatever your hand and purpose destined to occur, that you had planned it. The reason that God knows these things is because He planned all of them. Alright, so let's talk about implications of God's knowledge. Number one, uh, well, first of all, the main thing is because God is infinite in His knowledge, we are accountable to God. Okay, so because God is infinite in power, we are dependent upon God. Here we see that we are accountable to God because of His His uh, knowledge. It means that we have to give an answer for our deeds. Um, that that there is going to be a time for all unbelievers because they haven't had their deeds paid for, their sinful deeds paid for they're going to have to answer for them. We'll see that here in just a second. But um, for us, Jesus has taken our evil deeds and nailed them to a cross with Him. See, God, this makes us accountable, which gives us the understanding that we God has a complete knowledge of all of our deeds. Psalm 139 says, You have searched my heart and you have known me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my my going out and my lying down you're familiar with all my ways before a word is on my tongue you know it completely okay think about that reflect on those sorts of things that god knows everything about you he knows all of your thoughts second implication is that god's knowledge will be the basis of judgment revelation 20 we've seen this here in verse 12 um, I think it was just last week. Um, I saw the or two weeks ago. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books are open. The dead were judged according to what they have done, as recorded in the books. So, so there's going to be a record of all of our deeds, and those are going to be um, uh, used as the basis of judgment for those who oppose God. Mankind is accountable to God because of their deeds. God knows all these things and and He will judge those who who have not trusted His Son Jesus as their savior. significance of this is that it um serves as motivation to do two things: first, to forsake sinful living. okay if God knows all about me, if God knows everything about me, then I ought to want to to God to expose my heart to me if He knows the hidden thoughts of my heart, if He knows the sins that I'm committing that I'm not aware of because of ignorance or unbelief, then, then we want God to expose them. Now, that sounds like a dangerous thing to pray, but that's what the psalmist prayed here. Uh, David did in Psalm 139. He says, Search me, O God. Know my heart. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. Okay, we only fool ourselves when we try to hide these things from God. As if, if I don't bring these things before God, then maybe they they can stay hidden. Maybe they can they can continue on in my life. But but we fool ourselves into thinking that God God already knows those things. So so ask Him to to reveal them to you. Ask Him to make them clear. To search me and know me and see if there's any wicked way in me, so that I can. I can, uh, I can repent of them so I can turn from them. It should give us um, motivation to forsake sinful living, but also it should give us motivation to pursue biblical living. Psalm 119 says, How can a young man keep his way pure by living according to your word? I seek you with all my heart. Do not, do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I will not sin against you, <clears throat> that I might not sin against you. we will never face any circumstance that God does not know he's he's known all about our circumstances what exactly precisely will happen in our life in our minds from eternity past he's known it all because he's planned it all and so we can trust God we can we can turn from uh wrong sorts of living. We can forsake sinful living and then we can pursue biblical living because of God's infinite knowledge. We can trust Him. Alright? Any questions on His knowledge? Alright. His authority. God is infinite in His authority. This is something that we would call sovereignty. Okay? We, we, hear, we hear about this a lot. This comes up in almost every passage of Scripture that we study we see that God is sovereignly in control of, of circumstances. What does this mean? Well, it means that God is in control of every circumstance of every circumstance. There's not one circumstance in life that God is, is out where God is out of control, as if he's got his realm that he handles, and then maybe Satan kind of handles that other stuff. All of that stuff is underneath the umbrella of God's sovereignty, underneath His control. Romans 8 talks about this way. Paul says, We know that all things work together for good for those who love Him and for those who are called according to His purpose. From creation, from eternity past, all of history, the outworkings of His design and plan are controlled by God. Every single circumstance. And that means also, God's sovereignty means that He is never dependent on man. We saw this with regard to His power. He's not dependent. Nothing outside of Him constrains Him. Um, We look to God and, and are amazed at Him. Who has known the mind of the Lord, Romans 11 talks about. And so that means that He's totally independent with all of His decisions. He's never manipulated he never depends on our actions to to carry out His purposes. That is, He doesn't have to wait to see what we're going to do in order to fulfill His plan. He already has it planned out. He's sovereignly in control of all of that. God's sovereignty also means that He does whatever He pleases. Isaiah six nine says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like Me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. God's sovereignty means that He does whatever He pleases. And it also means that whatever God does is always right. It's not because God has, uh, you know, there's some external standard. Okay, here's the standard of right and wrong, and God meets up to that standard. No, God is, is the standard. Okay? God is the standard of right and wrong. Who who are you, O man of God, to talk back to Him? Excuse me, Romans chapter 9. Can we question God? Can we, as the clay, say to the potter, why have you made me this way? Why have you made the justice system this way? Why do you treat someone like this and this other person like that? Can we say that to God? Okay, God is completely sovereign over all things, and all that He does is right because He is the standard of right. He has determined what is right and wrong. So, we talk about, when we talk about God's greatness, the attributes of God's greatness, we're talking about God's infinity that there is nothing outside of Him that determines who He is or what He does. Nothing. And so, let's think about some implications with regard to His authority. First, we saw that mankind was dependent because of God's power. Second, we saw that that mankind is, um, is accountable because of His knowledge. Thirdly, we see that mankind is responsible because of his authority, we ought to be responsible. We should be totally responsible to him, that he has the independent absolute authority on all things, and so we ought to respond in our thinking and our act and our actions in a way that would be pleasing to him, that he provides the standard of our behavior <clears throat> um when God gave the Ten Commandments, He began by identifying Himself. I am, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Therefore, do not have any gods before you. Um, secondly, mankind is responsible because God will condemn violators. That is, those who violate His commands. Thirdly, mankind is responsible because God has sovereignly planned all the free choices of men. Now, God does not force us to do things contrary to our will. He doesn't treat us like robots. We still have free wills in some sense, but our free wills are compatible with His sovereignty in some way. That God has control over our free will um, so that He allows us to do what we want to do, but ultimately it's what He planned for for uh, to happen. Again, I, I quoted earlier Exodus Chapter nine, but Paul quotes that passage here in Romans chapter nine, verse 17. The scripture says to Pharaoh, "I raised you up for this per- very purpose that I might display you, Pharaoh, I-, I might display my power in you, Pharaoh, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth." I and mean, even the wicked acts of Pharaoh were planned by God as part of God's purpose, and so that means that we are responsible to God even with regard to the free choices that that uh that we have. And so its significance for us is that it gives us an understanding that he is uh it, that that he is that we are responsible to the sovereign god to give him a god-centered purpose in life. God-centered purpose in life. 1 Corinthians 10:31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to what the glory of God. Okay? We have a responsibility that no matter what in our life we do, we are responsible to God. And that means in every situation in our life, whether big or small, we need to ask the question, what would God want me to do? This is not my life to live. This is, my life is owned by God. I am a steward of, of what I do. I need to be responsible to Him. Secondly, should give the Christian peace and confidence that we can serve without worry or anxiety, that, that, that things are going to spiral out of control somehow. That even our service of, of Him has meaning, that it has purpose, that God is using it within His creation to accomplish His purposes. And um, that even in times of indecision and frustration, that we can turn to God and, and uh, find out what He expects of us. Um, Let me just finish with this uh, quotation from Charles Spurgeon and then I'll ask if you have any questions. There's no attribute, Spurgeon says with regard to sovereignty, there's no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances in the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. There is nothing for which the children ought more earnestly to contend than the doctrine of their master over all creation, that is, His sovereignty. The kingship of God over all the works of His own hands. The throne of God and His right to sit upon that throne. On the other hand, there is no doctrine more hated by worldlings. No truth of which they have made such a football as the great, stupendous, yet most, certain doctrine of the sovereignty of the infinite Jehovah. Men will allow God to be everywhere except on His throne. They will allow Him to be in His workshop, to fashion worlds and make stars. They will allow Him to be in His money house, to dispense His alms and bestow His bounties. They will allow Him to sustain the earth and bear up the pillars thereof, or light the lamps of heaven and rule the ways of the ever-moving ocean. But, when God ascends His throne... His creatures then gnash their teeth. And we proclaim an enthroned God and His right to do as He wills with His own, to dispose of His creature as He thinks well, without consulting them in the matter. Then it is that we are hissed and execrated. And then it is that men turn a deaf ear to us for God on His throne is not the God they love but it is God upon the throne that we love to preach. It is God upon His throne whom we trust. See, the world is happy to have God as a sovereign God. They're happy for Him to be creating stars and pouring out money out of His money house, as Spurgeon says. But once He comes into their little world, reveals himself to them and shows them that he demands that they respond in a certain way, then they start to hiss. No, you cannot be my sovereign God. I'm happy to take the gifts that you give, but I don't want the responsibility that comes with it. And as believers, that should be the farthest thing from our thinking. And we should be happy to to be accountable and and responsible and dependent upon God because of his greatness. Any questions or comments on uh God's infinity, that nothing outside of him controls him and and he does whatever he pleases. Sandra. I don't know a or Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, them yeah. Thank you. God, God helps those who help themselves. So that's, that's up to you wisdom in making decisions. Yeah, I I wouldn't say it in those terms. I know people that use that phrase are well-meaning, but I wouldn't say it in those terms. I would say God helps those who entrust themselves to God to do what He pleases, and it's not as not of. Uh, not as uh, succinct of a bumper sticker, but um, but I, I would say that we need to entrust ourselves to God, recognizing that He is in control. See, what, what I think people can do, and, and I don't want to try to force anything onto what they're thinking or their motives or anything like that, but God helps those who help themselves it is more of an understanding like we have the final say type idea. And that's not the case at all. We want to want to entrust ourselves to God, recognizing that He is sovereignly in control, and that ultimately what we do is a part of His purpose. But we can't ultimately change God. We can't move Him to do something that He didn't plan. He hadn't already planned to do. And um, so, in general, I would say that statement is true. But I would just uh, I would just nuance it a little bit. All right. Is there another thought, Ken? I just think Yeah. for this God who is at work in me both to and to work for this good pleasure. I, I made a whole in my body. Human will enabled by God to God's will and God's purpose. And then I made a, another note for uh, John six forty four, 44, uh, which uh, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be called one heard and from the Father comes to me. Hmm. Yeah, even even our free choice of turning and salvation to Jesus Christ is ultimately determined by God. We can't come, we can't actually make that decision to follow Christ unless the Father draws us. That's what Jesus says. Um so so it may seem like that way from our perspective, but what we need to ultimately recognize is that it's God who is working in us, okay, both, both to come to salvation and to, to work out our salvation, Philippians 2, to kind of bring those both together. Thank you, that was helpful. All right. Well, we've run out of time. Uh, thank you for your attention. Next week, we'll look at God's goodness, the attributes of God's goodness. And those have to do more with the things that, that we can duplicate or that we can have. Things like His his holiness um, and His uh, his creativity. Um, things that, that make us uh, like Him. The fact that we are made in the image of God. We'll look at those attributes next week. Qualities of love and, and joy and peace that God has. We can also have these that we've talked about this week. We should be in awe of God, but we can't duplicate any of these. We should um, We should praise Him for these things, though. Let's do that now. Father, we do praise You for Your your majesty, that You are far above us. You are transcendent, that that we are so small and insignificant in comparison to the universe that You have created. And uh, even the most powerful of us as creatures is uh, really pales in comparison to Your power. And so we stand in awe of Your greatness. We stand in awe of Your infinity, that nothing outside of You constrains You and we pray that You would help us to depend more upon You, be more accountable to You and responsible for our own actions, recognizing You have a sovereign plan, You determine what will happen, but You also include us in that and desire that we uh, live rightly. We pray that You would help us as a result of this not to become passive, but that we would work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, that we would... Uh, pursue biblical living and, and put away sinful living. Help us, we pray. Search our hearts, know them, see if there's any wicked way in us and lead us into the way of everlasting, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.